You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have been studying in the Gospel of John now for many months, and I have to be transparent and tell you, it has far exceeded my expectations. I have been excited about preaching through the Gospel of John. I've taught it many times, but I've never actually just preached through the Gospel of John, passage by passage, and it has been immensely rewarding for me. Um, this, this book of John is, is so masterfully constructed that John would put it together as he does with a singular focus and intent that you would believe. And when I say believe, and when John says believe, he does not merely mean that you would agree or that you would not disagree. He means believe as in you understand what he's saying and you stand with your entire weight upon that truth. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so John writes his gospel as an attempt to bring you across the line of faith so that you will believe. But what's interesting is... After the gospel accounts, we get into the book of Acts, then we have all of these epistles before the book of Revelation. And the book of Acts and all these epistles, 13 of which are written by Paul, all deal largely with doctrine, that is, teaching. What are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to do now that Messiah has come? The long-awaited promised Messiah, the Christ, He has come. Now that He has come, what do we do? How are we supposed to now live? But it's fascinating, we don't get that much doctrine or teaching from Jesus himself. Well, this morning, we get the quintessential passage where Jesus himself gives us his doctrine. Jesus himself will, in the most marvelous, magnificent, concise, articulate way, give us some of the absolute bedrock underpinnings of our belief. So I'm so excited to finally get to the second half of John chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 10. We will begin reading in verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. And I hope that by the end of our time together in this passage, we will all sort of understand and apply this big idea for the morning. It goes like this. What Jesus thinks about Jesus is what we should think about Jesus. Now that's pretty well dur. I know. But as I prayed through this thing, okay, why is this in the Bible? Why did the Spirit of God inspire John to write this when when he does, place it where he does, how he does? And it's because I think very critically what John is trying to help us to do is to believe. And what Jesus thinks about Jesus is what we should think about Jesus. Now, I'm going to read John chapter 10 beginning in verse 22 in its entirety and then we'll unpack it. John chapter 10, verse 22 to the end of the chapter. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered round him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The words that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The irony in that verse is dripping. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? I'm not doing the works of my Father then. If I am not doing them, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing at first, and there he, Jesus, remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is God's word. And I've been waiting years and years and years to be able to say that expression after reading the end of John chapter 10. This is God's word. Let me explain. John is trying to convince his readers that Jesus is the God. Now, if you're going to do that, where do you begin? How do you start? Well, you position this Jesus as like no ordinary, everyday rabbi. No, no, no. He is the Lagos. He is the, Yabar, the Dabar Yahweh. He is the expression of God himself. He is the Lagos. He is as the gravity and light and heat all came together and are walking around in one human form. He is the one who, who has a brilliant conversation with Nicodemus. He's cleansed the temple. He heals an official's man, uh, son from a distance. He heals a paralyzed man. He feeds maybe 20,000 people at a time without even trying hard. He walks on water. He stands and declares, I am the water of life. I am the bread of life. I am the provision of life. He cleans the temple, but he also says in the temple, I am the light of the world. I am he who brings illumination and understanding. I am the one who helps you to sense your environment the way that you were made. I am the good shepherd. No of my sheep will ever get out of my clutches and to demonstrate that he heals a little lost sheep, a blind man. He is the good shepherd. Now, the text is going to tell us something pretty amazing, that Jesus is now going to finally give his last sort of uh, plea, his last presentation on who he is and what he is doing and where he is from. This is the last public teaching that Jesus will ever do in the Gospel of John. After chapter 11 and following, he will be essentially huddled up with the disciples, doing some things, uh, not in secret, but not in a full public display. This is it. This is the last thing that John's going to record of Jesus' earthly ministry. So, let's back up very briefly. Let me unpack, beginning again in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. So this is a very important time indicator. John doesn't tell us what we want to know because, well, John wasn't American and he didn't care. We want to know exactly when this takes place. John tells us in a way that we have to sort of figure some things out. It's the Feast of Dedication. This is helpful because this tells us that at least two months 
have gone by since verse 21 to verse 22. I know your Bible does have a two-month gap there, but there must necessarily be a two-month gap between verse 21 and 22. In verse 21, we, we wrap up Jesus' time at the Feast of Tabernacles. We know when that is. End of September, 1st of October. And now we're at the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication is the only festival in Israel that is not biblically prescribed. In other words, you're not going to turn to Leviticus and look through and go, Oh yeah, the Feast of Dedication. So what's going on? The Feast of Dedication was to commemorate and to celebrate something that had happened about 165 years earlier. During that time... Uh, about 300 years prior, Alexander the Great had taken over the known world. And after Alexander the Great dies, his four generals split up his empire. The Seleucids take the area that is what we would call the Middle East. The Seleucids, General Seleucus is a Syrian. He loves that part of the world. And he hates the people of Israel. He hates the people of God. So one of his lieutenants, 150 years or so later, is called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus God Manifest was his title. A uh, very humble nickname if you ask me. Antiochus Epiphanes, at least 11 cities, at least that we know of, 11 cities in the ancient Near East are called Antioch because of this guy. He's kind of like the George Foreman of naming towns. Everybody gets to be named George. Every city's going to be named Antioch. Antiochus Epiphanes comes into Israel and he murders 80,000 Jewish people. Just outright. Just kills 80,000 people, slaughters them. Sends another 80,000 off all over the world in slavery and bondage and a life of hardship. He decimates and eradicates the people of Israel. He even goes into the temple, boldly struts into the Holy of Holies, knocks over the mercy seat of God, and sets up an altar and a monument to Zeus, and he sacrifices a pig on that altar in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God, in Jerusalem, in Israel. These people were down. And this man had his boot on their neck. But a man rose up. He's from a family called the Hasmoneans. And his name was Judas. His father's name was Matthias. And by the way, every kid in those days of Jesus was named Judas or Matthias because of these two guys. Judas Hasmonean. But everyone called them Judas Maccabees. That's a nickname. It's Judas the Hammer. It's a great nickname. Way better than Eric the Rubber Ducky. It just doesn't have the same kind of panache. Judas the Hammer rises up in insurrection and he somehow defeats Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus is killed. Judas goes into the temple, clears out all the desecrations, and he restores the altar and they light the menorah in the temple. But they've only got one day of oil. Because it was in short supply. They didn't have it. The people had been obliterated. So they light all the lampstands and he commands all the people of Jerusalem to light a lampstand in their home. But they've all only got one day of oil. But these lamps allegedly, miraculously, burn for eight days. We're talking about Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. Instead of one night of presents, they get eight crazy nights. Perhaps you know the song. This is Hanukkah. It is to celebrate and commemorate the work of Judas the Hammer as he literally rides into Jerusalem on a white horse 
and obliterates the Gentile invaders and oppressors, drives them out, and reestablishes the glory of Israel for Israel. And so Jesus, as he's strolling through the temple at Solomon's Colonnade, it's on the eastern end of Temple Mount, where Peter will preach later in the book of Acts. He's just walking through boldly and courageously and fearlessly because, oh, by the way, he's God. And so as he's walking through there, it's Hanukkah. The lamps are burning. They're celebrating and they are commemorating Judah the hammer. And they're looking at this Jesus going, hmm, we don't like him. We don't like him, but if anyone's going to drive out the Romans, this is our guy. So verse 23, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him. Bad translation. So the Jews surrounded him aggressively. This is when you're camping and the wolves surround your fire and all you can see is little sets of eyes in the bushes. This is not, hey, it's that guy. Let's go have a chat. No, no, no. They surround him aggressively as if to seize him. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Literally, how long will you hold up our souls? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's the question. Are you the one? What's in their minds? Are you the hammer? Are you the hammer that's going to restore our glory to us? Incidentally, it didn't end up well long term for the Maccabees unless you kind of like getting, you know, skinned alive and set on fire. That's a bad way to end. But they don't really remember that small detail. They want to know, are you the hammer? Ironically, there's going to be a hammer used on Jesus. Jesus answered them, I already told you. I told you already. How many different ways can I tell you? I have told you, I have told you, but I'm not answering according to your expectations. And you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now right there is a clear, clear claim to deity. A clear claim of divinity. I do the things that you have witnessed and you can't argue with, and I do it in my Father's name. They know that he means God the Father. Verse 26 is a super central passage. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Verse 26 again. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Hear that for the third time. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. It is not, Jesus saying, it is not that they are not his sheep because they don't believe. Jesus is not saying, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He's saying, you don't, you're not my sheep and so you don't believe. All the difference in the world. I can't make a big enough deal about that. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep, they just, they know, they, they hear. That's the indicator. Do the words of Jesus and the stories about Jesus and the tellings of Jesus, do they make you go, man, ah, uh, and something reverberates and resonates and it vibrates and you just go, that, that sounds like what my soul is desperate for. You're a sheep. Oh, there are certainly seasons of wandering and perhaps even disobedience and sin and defiance and rebellion and all those things, yes, but the sheep hear his voice and they respond. Now you may be sitting, well, hold on. D do I want to hear his voice? Do the people that I know and love in my family, my community, are they sheep? Ask a better question. 
When Jesus speaks, when Jesus is spoken about, is there some sort of, I know that, 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 that is what I'm about, then you're his sheep. Verse 28, I give them, and I prefer the translation, everlasting life. Only one being, and that is God in three persons, has eternal life. I give them eternal or everlasting life. Now, if I'm ever asked to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, I will go to John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Because Jesus gives a brilliant handling of this mystery and this majesty of God in one nature, one essence, and yet multiple persons. Listen to what he says. I give them everlasting life. Jesus is, he's the one that does that. And they will never perish. Weak translation. They will, by mean, they will by no means, no way, never perish. Jesus repeats himself for emphasis because, you know, highlighting and emojis weren't invented back then. So he says, they will by no means, no way, never perish. It is as strong as he can say it. Listen to this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one means, you ready for this? This is, this is some brilliant insight from your pastor. No one means... No one. And you are included in the no one. It would be kind of handy if he said, no one except for you can snatch you out of my hand. He doesn't say that. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So already we're beginning to not only explore the doctrine of the Trinity according to Jesus, the doctrine of preservation. That you are his, you are his eternally. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me. Oh, whoa, whoa, isn't it interesting? The Father and the Son are in perfect agreement. It's not like Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but man, the Father is so mad. No, it is the Father who sent the Son. It is the Father who gives them to the Son. It is the Father who has always been the sending one. So much so that he sends his own Son at great peril of risk and shame, and death, and humiliation, and anguish, and separation. Jesus has the same notions as the Father, and yet they are not the same person. I give them eternal life, verse 28, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus does something so brilliantly, so succinctly. I want you to understand. Look at what he says. Verse 28, they are in my hand. Verse 29, they are in the Father's hand. How can that be? I've heard people try to tell me, nowhere in Scripture does it defend the doctrine of the Trinity, except for every page of the New Testament. They are in the hand of the Son, and they are in the hand of the Father. How can that be, unless they are both God, of the same essence, and yet different persons? Oh, we'll get to the Spirit later. They are in the hand of the Father. They are in the hand of the Son. And by the way, I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. And no one is strong enough to take him out of the Father's hand because the Father is greater than all. All. No one can take anyone out of the Father's hand. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. Boom! Another nuclear explosion. Jesus just claims as dogmatically, as directly as he can in that day and time that he is God. I know it misses on us in 2019 in Western civilization because we say, why won't he just say it? 
Because the sayings of Jesus do not include, hey, y'all, I'm the Messiah. He does never say that because he's not in East Texas in 2019. He's in the ancient Near East. And he says, I and the Father are one. We lose something in the translation. The word one that he uses there is in the neuter. It is not masculine. It is not feminine. It is neuter. It is a grammatical way of saying, I am God. I'm not the same person as the Father, but I am of the same essence. Same essence, different person. Which I know is hard to understand. I know it's hard to fathom. But this is the doctrine of Jesus according to Jesus. This is what Jesus thinks about Jesus, and that's what we are supposed to think about Jesus. That's our big idea. What Jesus thinks about Jesus is what we should think about Jesus. It is an absolutely crystal clear declaration of his deity and his divinity. Now, we might ask the question, well, I, I, I'm not so sure. Well, let's see how Jesus' hearers respond to this. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Uh, I, I think they got it. You and I might not have, but he says the Father and I are one. Neuter expression, not masculine, not feminine. One essence, different persons. And they picked up stones to kill him. <laughs> the practical side of me goes, where did they get all the stones? <laughs> like, I've been up there. It's smooth and clean. It's delightful. There's not just a pile of you know, cannonballs laying around like, oh, here we go. <laughs> no, they came prepared. That's interesting. And they're going to ultimately call him a blasphemer for claiming to be God. And yet, look what they themselves are trying to do. Dispense capital punishment, which God in this time reserves for himself. Isn't that a great, grand irony? Now, let me, let me just ask you for a moment to put yourself in the center of the circle. Remember, these guys are surrounding Jesus, and now they're armed with stones. What are you going to do in that situation? You're going to do what Jesus does and quote scripture, of course. <laughs> no, you're going to run like a scalded ape and you're going to clarify. Some, Boys, chill. This has been a great misunderstanding. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Those are rocks. Those hurt. I, no, 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 no. Let me explain. Jesus stands there and lo, the King James says, he flincheth not. <laughs> Jesus answered them. I have shown you many good works from the Father. Oh, there it is again. These guys have rocks. They've surrounded him to kill him. And he again pulls no punch. Oh, you, you want to you kill me, do you? Well, let me make it even clearer. I've done a lot of works that you have seen, and they are from God the Father. I am from him. I am for him. I am returning to him. For which of them are you going to stone me? Let's see, was it uh, turning water to wine? Is that, is that a blaspheme? Hmm, no, no, no. Was it uh, healing a man's child from a distance? Is that blaspheme? No, let's see. Was it healing a paralyzed man? Oh, you didn't like that because it was on the Sabbath, but are you going to stone me for that? Let's see. Was it for feeding the thousands of people? No, 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 okay. Was it for walking on the water? Are you going to stone me for doing that? Because that's awkward, but you're, you're going to stone me for that, really? Oh, you're going to stone me for... Uh, for healing a, a blind man who could not see but can now sense his environment the way he was created to be? Is that what you're going to kill me for? Is it for the stuff that I said that was evil and sin-soaked? No. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you. Okay, so that's unambiguous. As if they were going, no, 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 we're just playing bocce ball. It's cool, man. No, no, no. It's obvious they're trying to stone him. 
but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. I have heard it said so many times, nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus claim to be God. Well, Jesus' opponents certainly think he's claiming to be God. So if Jesus isn't claiming to be God, these guys are completely confused. Jesus certainly thinks that he's God. Or let me put it this way. If Jesus isn't God, somebody sure needs to tell Jesus. He is not merely an example, as I continue to hear even to this day. He is claiming to be from the Father, of the same essence as the Father, for the Father, returning to the Father. Now Jesus is going to do something that is unbelievably brilliant. Because you know that whole him being God thing. In verses 34, 35, and 36, he's also going to simply say a statement that is the basis of our entire church. Now, it's not often that Jesus agrees with me because, you know, he's sinless and correct, and I'm frequently wrong. But this is one time where Jesus agrees with me. And he's going to validate and affirm the doctrine of the inspiration fully of Scripture. And it's not even his whole point, but the way that he says it is just so brilliant. It literally is the reason that we do everything that we do in this church. So let me just set the stage with that as if I could not make this more important because I can't. In verse 34, he says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. What is Jesus doing? When surrounded by opponents who want to stone, kill, and execute him, Jesus reverts to <laughs> exegesis. <laughs> Total nerd, I dig this. Jesus quotes from a very obscure Old Testament passage written by a very Old Testament author about which we know virtually nothing. He's quoting from Psalm 82, if you've got your cross-reference Bible there. I need to read Psalm 82, because these guys are the masters of rhetoric and dialogue. They're the, the teachers of Israel. They know more than anything else. And Jesus finally, as his last public encounter with them, says, Okay, you, you guys, you, you want to argue about minutiae and you want to argue some textual details? Does your law not say? That's interesting. Because he's going to quote from Psalm 82, and he's going to call it law. Now, we would think, well, the law, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. Jesus says, oh, no. The scripture that you have is God's law. And not just the scripture that you like, even the Psalms. And not just the Psalms that you know, i.e. Psalm 23. No, 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 no. Psalm 82, written by a guy named Asaph that you don't even know, but I do. It's law. In other words, every single aspect of the scriptures are inspired and infallible. And Jesus is going to make this point very clearly. But first, Psalm 82. It's a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. That's strange. Elohim in the Hebrew. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They all walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. 
Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Whoa. Jesus, surrounded by oppressors and executioners armed with stones, says, You want to play scripture games? Let's play some scripture games. And he quotes Psalm 82, specifically verse 6, that talks about the leaders of Israel who are corrupt judges, installed by God, but they are not reigning and ruling in His stead accurately. They are the judges of Israel, and they are judging corruptly. They are the vice regents of Israel. Vice, like vicariously, to stand in the place of, regents, to reign and to rule in place of. And in Psalm 82, he says, you leaders and government officials that I have installed, you are to represent me to do what? To defend the plight of the innocent and the helpless and the hopeless. Sidebar. We find ourselves in our day and age in a national circumstance in which the judges, the rulers, the vice regents installed by a sovereign God are now legislating the victimization and oppression of innocence. I got so many emails, texts, and calls over the last two weeks, I cannot not speak to it. So what is the church to do? Well, hold signs and march in circles, of course. No. It is the time for the church to ratchet up her concern, her prayer, her engagement, biblically, spiritually, lovingly, with grace and truth. Because that's what this world needs. And by the way, God is judge. What Psalm 82 says, Jesus quoting this at his oppressors and, and accusers. He sees, he knows, vengeance is the Lord's, says the Lord. And Jesus puts this on them, and then he explains why he quotes this to them. Back to John chapter 10, lest I get all preaching. Verse 35, if he, the psalmist, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken. It's that little, that little phrase. Even this insignificant, hidden, and obscure passage in a psalm written by an insignificant, hidden, obscure psalmist named Asaph, it cannot be broken. It cannot be disobeyed. It cannot be dismissed. It is God's Word. Scripture cannot be broken. Even this little bit of jot and tittle in the middle of Psalm 82. Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. <laughs> Jesus is engaging in a classic, it's an academic argument where how much so then, how much more so now? God called them judges. He called them gods. And they were corrupt. How much more so should I not be called God, the Son of God, not the offspring of God, the essence of God, when I've done nothing wrong? There is no sin on me. And oh, by the way, I am the judge of the world. How much more so then? And your scripture says that I'm not blaspheming because God called the corrupt ones gods. I'm not corrupt, and I am the judge, and I was sent by God. And you're going to stone me for that? Isn't that interesting? Jesus totally exegetically outmaneuvers them. Verse 37, unbelievable, unbelievable. Verse 37, it's at this point that if I'm Jesus, I just wink and Michael comes swooping out of the sky and he just cuts them all in half. Wait a minute, that's what I would do. 
That's one of the three trillion reasons why I'm not God. Jesus, to those who have surrounded him to kill him, Jesus extends mercy. And he invites them to believe. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I would never do this. This is Jesus. This is the stuff I read about Jesus and I go, man, I wish I was like him. Man, I wish I would say the things he says. Man, I wish I would do the things he did. Because who does this? Jesus offers mercy and invites them to believe. Verse 37 takes my breath away. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then, then don't believe me. Like, if you can't believe what I'm saying, okay. But would you still believe anyway? Verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. At least just look. Bruh, blind Billy, he's, he's looking at you. He can see you. Leaping Larry, he's doing wacky jacks in the corner. He's flipping all over Temple Mount. At least look at that. Ask people if they were fed in the wilderness. Ask these people if they saw me walking on water. If you can't believe what I'm saying, at least look at what I've done. It's irrefutable evidence. Believe. Lay down your rejection that you cling to so tightly. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I know that you are rejecting me and I know that you are relying on yourself. It's almost as if Jesus says, but what if you dropped that? Just like you should drop those stones. What, what if you just dropped it? I love this Jesus. It's unbelievable. Verse 39. Again they sought to arrest him. Didn't work. But he escaped from their hands. I have no idea how. He doesn't tell us. He just, it's not his time. He is sovereign. He's in control of the entire episode. Now verse 40. If in verses 37 to 39 we see Jesus' invitation to believe, verses 40 to 42 is going to show us what it is to have belief. I love how John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, crafts this narrative. Because we're going to leave finally after chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 of being in Jerusalem the entire time. Chapter 10 is going to end with a scene change. We're in Jerusalem with a bunch of angry, apparently unbelieving Jewish leadership. And all the next thing we know, we're going to be in Perea, which is east of the Jordan River. And we're going to see authentic, legitimate belief. What's the point of that? Well, city folk can't believe and the country people can't. No, that's not obviously what John is saying. John, the gospel writer, is going to give us the key and the secret to belief. And it's right here in verse 40 to 42. And let me just say again, it is the reason we do what we do at Bethel. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John the Baptist did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. not about the preacher. It's not even about the preaching. John was nobody famous. He wore camel hair. Totally gauche, especially after Labor Day. <laughs> totally an unpretentious preacher. Did no signs. Did no wonders. Did no miracles. Didn't even do three points in a poem. He just said, it's Jesus! Look how beautiful. Look how believable. He's Jesus. Oh, he still does things that are unbelievable. It's Jesus. And yes, John the Baptist got discouraged. And yes, he got depressed. And yes, he lost his head. 
But it was the preaching of Jesus, unpretentiously so. So we always want to be about that here. Not making a big deal about the kind of music that we do or the decor that we have or not have or the preacher or the other person who is preaching or whatever. We want to hold up Jesus. That what happened in John chapter 10 at the end of the chapter would happen for you. We simply want to preach Jesus. So let me just give you as a result of this passage, let me just give you three very quick, I hope, implications. Remind you of our big idea. What Jesus thinks about Jesus is what we should think about Jesus. We want to have the Christology of the Christ, if you will. So three quick implications. Number one goes like this from this passage. If you're looking for a reason not to believe, you will always find it. If you're looking for a reason not to believe, congratulations, you will always find that reason. I hear this fairly often, and perhaps maybe you're here this morning and you're even feeling this way. You just wish that you had a reason to believe. But just, that's a smokescreen. That's, that's not real. All of us as human beings have a reason to believe. The book of Ecclesiastes says God has planted eternity in our hearts. And Augustine picked up on that and said, and we are restless. We are never satisfied until we find ourselves in Him. All of us have a reason to believe. Deep down, we know that we need someone who is good and powerful, who loves us to be our shepherd, and that we are dangerously unqualified for the job. We know it. And yet, what will they think of us? What might I risk? What might I lose? How might this impact my image? Well, I have great gospel news for you. Your image really couldn't get any worse. I've asked around. You got nothing to lose. People already think way less of you than you think they do. It's great. So that piece of risk is no longer on the table. Now, most of us are looking to have our reasons to not believe be affirmed. And I suppose you always can and you always will. But what if you just let go of those and trusted? Jesus, what if you just put the rocks down? Stop looking for all of these reasons not to believe? And what if the voice of the shepherd actually began to make you go, huh, well, I don't know why, but I think I like that guy. And that guy claims to be God, and that guy claims to be good. And man, no one's ever been able to disprove any of the things that he did. Therefore, what he said must be, what if you just dropped all of your reasons not to believe? Number two, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus could not possibly be clearer on this. People get on to me sometimes for talking about the doctrine of election. Listen, I've never been as direct as Jesus is. I've certainly never been as direct as the Apostle Paul. Every one of his 13 letters, he always talks about the doctrine of election no later than chapter 2. Always. He's 13 for 13. I've never been that bold. Jesus talks about it so dogmatically. He says, you do not believe because you are not mine. It is not that you are not his because you don't believe. Now, I know that causes problems. And my goodness, we're murking. We have free will. I understand that. Except for the Apostle Paul says that we can never, can never, can never choose against our nature. What is needed first is a new nature. And God, by grace, does that. And so if you have even the slightest flicker, the slightest itch that needs to be scratched, then He is calling you. And if you even think, well, I wish I had that itch, then He is calling you. Drop your stone. 
drop your stones. No one can save themselves. Yes, Scripture clearly supports our responsibility and the choices that we make, but those choices are always an expression of our nature. What we need is a new nature. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. Third point, the Bible is the Word of God. <laughs> All of it. We don't get to pick and choose. Oh, I like this Sermon on the Mount. That means we're supposed to be nice. But that whole Paul thing gets kind of a beat down. No, 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 no. Paul's letters are read. The words of Solomon are read. It's all red letter, if any of it is. It's all God's Word. I get it. There are some things that are hard to understand. Get into Ezekiel chapter 23 and you will blush. That's why we do it in God's Spirit with God's people. But it is all God's Word. It goes like this. Jesus is alive. Like the most important three words in the cosmos. Jesus is alive. Therefore, He must be God and He must be King. Therefore, His Word is authoritative. Therefore, we are obligated to it. To know it. To do it. To be it. To love it. To study it. It's so good to us. It's good for us. And you know what? It tells us so much about the heart of God for us. Speaking of God's Word, let me just close with this wonderful package that I think sort of further develops what Jesus was saying in chapter 10. The Apostle Paul sort of flowers in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. It's been called the golden chain of Paul. Now, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, it goes like this. For those whom He foreknew. Now, I want you, if you can see this in your Bibles or on screen, everyone either look at the screen or look at your Bible. This is so important. I cannot overemphasize this. The second word on the page is those. The second word in the verse is those. And I want you to notice that those, the second word, makes it all the way down to the period in verse 30. Every single one of the those in 29 makes it to the period in verse 30. Every single one. Not a one slips through. So now follow Paul's logic. For those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. Not those whom he thought would look through the corridors of time and choose him. It's not what the verse says. You've got to do all kinds of handsprings to make that word say that word. doesn't mean that. Those whom he foreknew. He also predestined, for what? To be conformed to the image of His Son, transformed ever increasingly into His likeness. In order that He might be, Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers. What God wants is a whole bunch of little Christs. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Maybe some of you are feeling that now. And those whom He called, He also justified. You get called, you get justified. Every single one. What is justified? Found guilty, declared righteous. Every single one. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. In the mind of God, this is future history. And this is very good news. Which is why Jesus can say authoritatively and dogmatically, when I've got you, I've got you, and nobody can pull you out because my Father's greater than all and He's got you in His hand as well. Good luck getting yourself out of this. Praise God we don't have to. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer... I invite you to believe, to drop the stone of aggression and disbelief and just take the step. We as a church, we want to help you walk through that. But if you're here, you are already a believer and it is descended into some sort of behaviorism, some sort of moralism. I want to remind you of the glory of the gospel. 
that in every aspect of your life you are held, you are loved, and there is not a choice you can make to make God love you any less. So live in light and liberty and freedom. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.